0: Well, if you're visiting with us, I want to first tell you we're glad you're here, but also that normally we go through the Bible verse by verse, book by book. Uh, this morning, we are going to take a break. I've just finished my previous exposition, and since today, we are celebrating the resurrection. I'm actually going to be preaching from the Gospel of John. So if you would, take out your Bibles and turn them over to John 11, and perhaps uh, for many of you, uh, this will be a very familiar story in John's Gospel Uh, Of course, as you turn there, you'll see that it is the narrative, the story that is all about Jesus and Lazarus and Lazarus' sisters and Jesus coming to Lazarus after he had died. Uh, Like I say, if you've read John any amount of time or heard or been to church any amount of time, you've probably at some point heard someone expound on this particular text. Well, I've chosen it a few different reasons. I wouldn't normally start in the middle of a book, in the middle of a chapter in that book, but today I'm going to uh, for a couple of reasons because the Gospel of John really is the most uh, succinct And I say that knowing how long it is, but it is that one of the clearest, most succinct presentations of Christ's life and the theology that goes around that, it is perhaps my favorite book in the Bible, certainly my favorite book in the New Testament, because we can come to the gospel of John and drink again and again and again and never exhaust the richness, the beauty, and the substance that John's gospel actually gives us. Uh, It's unique in many ways, and I won't get into all of them this morning as we don't have time, but in all its beauty and uniqueness, it is beautifully simple. It is very, very straightforward and simple, both in its language and what it seeks to get at, and yet it is profoundly deep. One of my seminary professors described John's gospel as shallow enough for a child to wade through and deep enough for an elephant to swim, and it truly is that. Uh, when you pull back the layers of John's gospel. This morning we find ourselves in John 11. And in John 11, Jesus has been traveling with His disciples, and He's been summoned back to Bethany, a village, a small village on the outskirts of Jerusalem, because a friend of His had fallen ill and had died. And so we find Jesus making His way back to this village to grieve and meet with these sisters and to ultimately do what we know if we've read the story, perform this miracle. And and right on the outset, I want to say something about miracles. We need to understand that raising somebody from the dead was just as miraculous when this was written as it would be today. I mean sometimes people act like people were just coming back to life all the time in biblical history. And that's not the case. This was just as remarkable. So when people see Lazarus come walking out of that tomb, you know, in, in the early part of the first century, it was remarkable, just like it's remarkable for us to read about it. So it should be just as arresting to us. It was arresting to them. It caught people's attention. It grabbed people uh, by the heart and the mind and and compelled them to reexamine, just like it's meant to do for us this morning in April in 2023. We're confronted with the power of life and resurrection. And dear friends, that is an important thing for us to consider on this Sunday when we pause To say Jesus is risen. And so without delay, I want us to turn our attention. I'm going to start in the middle of this paragraph, and I'll give a little bit more context as we go on. But we're going to start this morning in verse 17 and work our way through verse 27. So friends, beloved of God, hear now God's infallible, inerrant word. Now when Jesus came, He found that Lazarus I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. So ends the reading of God's Word. May he add his blessing. Please pray with me. Father, we devote this time to you. This is your time. Oh, Father, minister to our minds and hearts at this very hour, this moment. Speak to us clearly by the power of your Word and your Spirit. Stir our minds afresh and renew our hearts in such a way that we will never be the same again. As through Christ we pray. Amen. You know, if, if you're a parent or, or you've worked with kids or, or, or either you just have friends in your life who are easily scared, um, you, you, you've, I'm going somewhere with this. Um, you've probably heard, go with me, I'm scared. Or, hey, would you come with me? I don't want to go by myself. I won't name any names at my house, but that may or may not be said to this day if somebody has to go outside when it's dark. Hey, would you go with me? I don't want to go by myself. There's something like it. And I'm not talking about Jacob, by the way. (laughs) Something about humanity, though, when we think about it, though, I want you to consider this. Let's let's, let's just kind of be transported back to Genesis chapter 1 very quickly. Something about humanity doesn't like to be alone. Right? What did, what did God say in a whole sea of it is good, it is good, it is good, it is good, it is very good. And then he said, it is not good that man should be alone. So, on a, on a grand scale and on a small scale, being alone doesn't feel right to us. It is why we seek out companionship in marriage, it is why we seek out solid and good friendships. And in a very small way, it's why we don't want to be alone in the dark because something about being alone feels wrong to us. It does not accord with our DNA. And so we find comfort in facing trials in the company of others. Y'all heard me mention Christian, our friend and brother? It's, It's a joy and a gift for Christian brothers and sisters to walk with one another in trial, in the worst trials, in the easy trials, in the hard trials. Because this is a beauty of our creation, not just that we like it, so I want you to hear me on this, not just that we like it or it's a good thing. Friends, it's a necessary thing. It is an essential thing. We need that companionship. We need that fellowship, whether we're extroverted or introverted, whether we're shy or not shy, whether we need alone time or we recharge from being with people all the time, we need companionship. It's part of our design. It's the imago Dei that is the image of God imprinted on us as creatures. We are communal by nature. And it's essential. We live in a world where despair and discouragement are rampant. We see it all around us. We see it happening all around us and the question becomes what do we do? Does it affect Christians in the same way it affects non-Christians? You bet it does. If it did, we wouldn't have problems of despair and depression and, and anxiety and so many other issues that we have that are just as prevalent in the church as they are outside of it. So those things affect the world. Now, there is some, there's a simple remedy, and of course, this is not me giving a, a psychological evaluation. Obviously, sometimes our chemistry needs to be re- reset, and that's a whole nother topic. But there is this sense of how do we as believers battle despair and discouragement? We battle it with the power of the gospel. We labor and and we march under the banner of the gospel. Now, maybe you're sitting here and you're saying, hey, I've heard that word before. What do you mean, Brad, by gospel? Well, I'll tell you that by gospel what I mean is Paul says in writing to the Corinthian church that God made Him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. So that is, God made Christ who was perfect to become sin for us so that in Christ we might have the righteousness of God that is required of us to stand before a holy God and be in communion with Him. Because much like we need communion with one another, our most vital need is communion with God. And that's where it has to start. So that, that horizontal communion, that, that, or that vertical, rather, uh, communion, has to start there that bleeds out into the horizontal. And so that's what I mean. When, so you're going to hear me say the gospel, and that's what I'm talking about, this, this message of life, truth, and hope that is essential. When you read texts like John 11, and the whole chapter, really, I've just taken a slice of it. When you read texts like this, what I want for us to see and grab onto this morning is that Jesus is not a future help. Let me say it like this. Jesus is not only a future help. Jesus is not a help for when it gets really tough. Jesus is not the red phone that we call when life gets really complicated and hard. Jesus is a present help eternally. And that's got to bring some encouragement to us. When you look at the story, what is, what is John really trying to tell us? The resurrection of Lazarus is important. It's really secondary. The, the primary idea at work here is that Jesus really is, like the psalmist said, a present help in times of trouble. How present and how much of a help? A present help that is able to conquer the power of death but it's ultimately seen in Jesus' own resurrection. He's giving us a sampling of His power here in John 11. So, He's a present help in times of trouble. And I'm telling you, when we genuinely grasp that, and I don't mean just give it lip service, I don't mean say it, but, but really wonder if it's really true. When we really grasp this idea, it will change how we live. It will change how we believe. Beloved of God, it'll change how we hope because that hope will be real. That life and belief will be rooted in something objective. And so when we're reading John 11, we are confronted with the idea that the the resurrection power of Christ, it gives us eternal life. It gives His people eternal life, not just life when trials get hard, but a life that is the same yesterday, today, and forever, not that we're immutable like God is, but the life He gives doesn't change. It it, it doesn't fluctuate with seasons. It doesn't fluctuate with circumstances. It doesn't fluctuate when we're, we're in the deepest, darkest valleys. And look, I'm looking out at a sea of diverse faces here, who have a sea of diverse experiences. And I am willing to bet you that there are some minds and hearts in this room right now who have gone through some deep, dark valleys. And what I know from experience as a pastor and from the truth is this. There is a present help that can walk with us in those deep, dark valleys that that doesn't make all the pain go away, but it shoulders that pain with us. So now what? Christ, go with me. I don't want to go by myself. And He is with His people. We, as adults, can say, I don't don't want to go alone. You know who who did say that to God? It's Moses. Moses. Moses said, I'm not going if you don't go with me. So we have a framework for what does it mean, what does it really mean to live the life of Christ? What does it really mean that Christ has raised us from death to life? What does it really mean in the very depths of those dark valleys for Christ to be the resurrection and the life? Well, beloved of God, it means that we have hope. It means we have victory. It means we have a friend who sticks closer than a brother. It means that we have an ever-present help in times of trouble and beyond. And that is worth celebrating. And John is doing, he, he's, he's just taking the curtain <laughs> And he's pulling it back just a little bit. Now, we'll see full-fledged as this gospel unfolds, but in John 11, he's taking that curtain back just a little bit and giving us a glimpse of the power that we are connected to in Christ. And so, with those thoughts in mind, there's one idea I'm going to share with us this morning, and it's this, that Jesus is a present help that leads to eternal hope, that Jesus is a present help that leads to eternal hope. So, what you're looking at here and what we've got to keep in the forefront of our minds is a both now and forever reality, a now and forever mentality. This is true now, right? But this is also true forever. Because sometimes if I'm in attending a funeral and you might hear somebody who with the best intention say, well, so-and-so was born on this date, and on this date they entered into eternity. And I want to say, well, actually that's not true. Well, they enter into eternity on the day that they are saved by Jesus Christ. That's when eternal life begins, we, we are born dead in our sins and we are lost in our, in our death and sin and Christ rescues us and pulls us from death to life, from, from sin and, and lostness to life and foundness. We're going to keep the paradigm there. I know foundness is not a word. From lostness to being found. And so life eternal begins in, those, in that moment. And I won't get too technical, but if we were going to follow Paul, we might even go to the foundation of the world when God's people were rescued before a grain of sand ever fell to the earth. Now that's powerful. That's life. We live with an eternal hope, and this is because, put those in asterisk, because Christ is our present help, already and yet to come. So there's present grace and there's future grace, and we can call it all the grace of God that is shepherding us through. When we're looking at this, there are two ideas in this particular paragraph under the heading of Jesus is the present help that leads to eternal hope. So we have Christ, our present help, and Christ, our everlasting hope. Those are two, the two main pillars that we have here. And so John begins here in 17, so he's kind of laid the framework. Jesus has been informed that Lazarus is dead. He's told his disciples, hold up, we're going we're to go there, but we're going to wait for a few minutes. And he's given them the instruction in, in verses 1 to 16 as to why, well, why, we're, why we're doing what we're doing. He's laying it out for them. I'm not going to rehearse it all in the interest of time. So he, he lays it out. You can read that for yourself and, he, and this culminates here with where we are this morning. So Jesus, or now, or John rather says, Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Now just so you know, if you read the first 16 verses, you know that's not a shock to Jesus. This is his intention, very much intended. Brad, why, if he could have saved him when he was sick, why did he wait? Well, that's exactly what the sisters ask him, and we'll get there in just a minute. Jesus very much intended to wait and let things play out in the way that they did. Now, why mention that Lazarus had been in the tomb for four days? Why mention that? Well, at the risk of sounding crude, to make sure that he is good and dead. So that there is no little soul sleep type thing. There is no he was really, really sick and recovered. It's to make sure that when they get there, there is no mistaking that Lazarus is asleep he is dead. And that four days waiting is for the glory of God to shine through in this moment. You see this in John. It's a pattern. In John 9, why was the man born blind? God, Jesus, was he in sin or was his parents? You remember how Jesus answers him there? Neither he nor his parents had been in sin, but that the glory of God may be displayed. Why wait for Lazarus to die Beloved, that the glory of God might be displayed. That not just the glory of God, but the power of life over death. The power of life over death that give the people of God confidence when they're in their deepest, darkest valley. Or when we're lost and we need finding. Now, we, I'll just, just to give you some scientific data here, four days in an arid climate like this It is quite possible that Lazarus might have already been in the early stages of decay. In fact, one of the sisters will say that. Don't take away the stone. It's going to smell. He's going to stink. He's already stinky by the time Jesus arrives. That's what we're dealing with. But what we're doing here is Jesus is setting us up here for the primary mission of Christ. Jesus is setting us up for what His primary mission is. Believe it or not, it's not just to raise his friends up from the dead. Oh, that's beautiful. The primary mission is to show the people who have hearts and minds to see what his ultimate plan is, is to bring life where death reigns, to give life where death has reigned, to do that in a spiritual sense and to do that in a physical sense so that people understand that though we've been in bondage, a new Lord and ruler has come, and now we will serve life, not death. That John mentions, I think it's in, in, the, in the Greek text, he says it's about 15 stadium off, so roughly two-ish miles. Bethany, this village is about two miles from Jerusalem. Jesus is going back to Judea. Well, you would have to read earlier in John's Gospel, specifically chapter 8, to understand Jesus had been threatened in Judea the last time he was there. And so coming back, To this area is a little bit larger than Lazarus. Knowing that the Jews in Judea wanted to have Jesus executed, He's coming back to a place where He knows His life is under threat of death. And He's doing this because there's a larger plan at work here. Jesus now, in John's gospel, especially once you get to John 13 and on, that's about the last week of His life, He's working His way back to the place where he can be crucified. And his life isn't taken. You read the Gospels, you'll see it's given. He puts himself in a position to be crucified. So he's coming back to enact his final plan, which is the cross. But you know what I love about this story? Lazarus becomes an example in so many different ways. But we're reminded that when we are dead, i.e. unable to do anything, it is Christ who comes and initiates. It is Christ who comes and finds us in that deep, dark valley and says, this one is mine, and I'm going to lift him or her up. In this case, it was Lazarus in a physical way, but it gets to the heart of Christ it gets to the heart of who Jesus is. It gets to the heart of the gospel that God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, i.e., I God is the initiator. When we look at this text, so they're in Bethany, they're near Jerusalem, and it tells us in verse 19, many Jews had come to Mary and Martha, or Martha and Mary rather, to console them concerning their brother. Uh, that, little, that little note, it's interesting, it, it gets to the communal nature of human beings in general. Uh, you're talking about a culture that was very communal in nature. But it's, it's, it's remarkable that they would have come two miles outside the city of Jerusalem. That normally didn't happen. So it, it gives you some, some um, sense of how important this family was, probably wealthy, that they would come the two miles to grieve with them and to, to share in this time with them. But I tell you, there's also something else at work, too drawing these these this jewish community outside of jerusalem into this tiny village that is bethany and it's god's sovereignty drawing them out to see something that will forever change them now that doesn't mean that they're all going to believe but they can't deny what they see god is drawing out witnesses to see the resurrection jesus would have a larger audience And so we continue, when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. What I love at this, Martha runs out to meet, Mary remains seated. If you read other Gospels, Luke, you'll find this is consistent with their personalities. Martha being the more impulsive, Mary being the kind of the more patient. So Martha runs out to meet, Mary patiently waits. you got different personalities at work. And you know what I love about this is neither of these responses are condemned by the text. In other words, John doesn't give one priority over the other. We might think that because Martha ran out to meet Him and Mary waited, that Martha would be the more right one. That's not the way the text puts it. So what do we take from that? Well, there's an interesting paradigm here that in some instances, Jesus is calling us out, right, to come. And in some instances, God is saying, wait patiently on the Lord. Why they responded the way they did, the text doesn't say exactly. But we know that one ran out and one waits. And both can be proper in a gospel context because the gospel charges both. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And then be still and know that I am God. Both are beautiful, good and right. When you you see this, Martha says to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. This is what Martha says to Jesus. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Before we even address that, I want us to understand what is the comfort here. It's the ever-present help of Jesus. Now, is godly fellowship good? Absolutely. And I hope, especially if you're a visitor here this morning, I hope you are a part of a God-preaching, Bible-centered fellowship where godly people are constantly coming around you to walk with you as you walk that is a blessing and gift from the god from god but nothing supplants takes place is superior to the ever present help who is jesus christ so when we see what is the comfort on this scene it is yes they have friends yes they have loved ones and all that is great but it's the coming of christ it's christ's presence with his people Because what is Christ doing? We're getting the climax of the story here. He's meeting them in their hardship. He's coming to them in their moment of grief. He intentionally waits four days. He waits till grief hits its pinnacle. And that is when the Lord of glory meets His people. And so I love the arc of the story, the way it's kind of pushing on and pushing on. As I read to you a moment ago, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died, but even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Beloved, it, we need to see the beauty of that profession, right? We need to, we need to, it really does need to wash over us. It's easy to read it and not think much about it, but to, to appreciate the beauty of that profession of faith, she uses the word Lord. We see her expressing a love and a trust in Jesus. Supreme confidence in this one that she is trusting can do immeasurably more than all we ask or think. When she says, you could have healed my brother, we need to understand this is not a question. She's not saying it hesitatingly. She's not saying it in the form of a question. She is making a statement. You could have. You would have. It is in your power to do that. So she understands something fundamental about the identity of Jesus that the Pharisees had missed. The people steeped in in Old Testament Scripture had missed it. And this grieving woman sees it and proclaims something that many learned men in Israel had missed. Lord, you, whatever you ask from God, God will give you. That is a declarative and a beautiful statement of faith. Because I want you to back up from this. Now, keep in mind, there was no Crossway weekly Bible study going on at the local synagogue. There was no biblical theology of the New Testament and the identity of Christ available. There was no constant Christological study or any other thing like that happening in Martha's life. This comes from a heart of faith, a confession made by one who genuinely trusted in who Jesus was. I'm going to point something out to you that I think is important In verse 21, Martha had said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Now, if you let your eyes drift over to verse 3 in chapter 11, the sisters sent to him saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. Curious flip there. He, He whom you love is ill. If you had been here, my brother would not have died. That is very intentional. He who you love versus my brother. Why would she do that? What is the point in doing that? She's letting you know that she identifies herself with the loss and the pain. In other words, this is not just innocuous to her. This is not, oh, Jesus can heal him, so I'm not really all that worried about it. She feels this death in the depths of her soul. Despite the fact that she thinks Jesus can do more than she can imagine, she identifies herself with the pain and the death. So we need to understand this is a valley that she's in, a deep, dark valley where she needs the one who has resurrection power. And then Martha, in response to this, starting in verse 22, she utters two I know statements. The first one is, I've already read you. I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. When you see this, but even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. You know what that clues you into, that even now? What that should clue us into, that's linguistically telling us she didn't expect Jesus to do what He did. She wasn't expecting Jesus to do a miracle. And the way we know that is because in verse 39... Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he's been dead four days, i.e., don't do it. It's going to stink and be repulsive because she's not expecting the miracle that Jesus does. So when she says, but even now, this is a wonderful statement of faith. And she doesn't just say, I believe, I think, I hope, I know that even now, it's beautiful. Talk about having some faith in the resurrection power of Jesus before you've ever even seen it. Beloved, that's convicting. It's humbling, but it's also encouraging. What do you take? If you take away nothing else this morning when you leave here, and maybe we'll never see each other again, believe in your heart of hearts that Jesus is the resurrection power that we need in body soul because he is the power that lifts us up to God, that brings us home. There are some things going on here in the Greek Testament that are, are noteworthy, if you had been here. So often in verbs, I'm, I'm not, I, I, this is not about to get super technical, but this is important. Literally, if you were to read this, literally, Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you, you had been here, my brother would not have died. She's placing the emphasis on Jesus is the only answer to this remedy by doubling the pronoun. So when she's speaking to him, but even now I know that whatever you, you ask from God, God will give you. That is you. She's doing this over and over, highlighting the unique relationship that Jesus has with her. And you know, I love this. How is, her grief, how is her grief remedied? Where is she putting her hope? In Christ, in Christ, in the truth of Christ, in the word of Christ. Beloved, she's saying, Jesus, you can do more than I can imagine. And so here's what I would tell you. Here's what I would tell you. Hope in Christ is never misplaced. Does that mean we won't hurt? No, it doesn't mean that. Does that mean you'll never have periods of anxiety and depression and deep pain? No, it doesn't mean that. In fact, I would imagine that you would have those things, and maybe as we get older we have more experience, experience them even more. So what's the silver lining to this? That in those seasons we're not alone. That in those seasons seasons, lament is real. We really do lament. But there's joy too. There's joy in recognizing I don't bear this burden on my own. I walk with Christ. Why? Because he has the power over death. Martha said to him her second, or Jesus had told her, your brother will rise again. So he's given her this assurance. She still doesn't know. They're talking about two different things. They're doing this. Martha said to him, in response to your brother will rise again. Oh, I know. Oh, I know. I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you, and then the second I know, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Beautifully done. Setting this up for exactly where Jesus wants it to go. Now we're getting to the crux of the matter. But this, this idea, Martha is talking about a confidence in the general resurrection. How often do you hear people in the New Testament talking about that? So here's the second thing. She's acknowledged Jesus as Lord in John 11, And then she's acknowledged, yeah, I know it's going to rise again because we're all going to be resurrected as God's people. So you've got these remarkable things. This is a great woman of faith you're looking at here. At least these statements are very faith-filled, setting us up for exactly where Jesus wants it to go. What I love is she doesn't fully understand all that there is to Christ, but she does understand His capacity to raise His people in the end of all things. What is she doing? She's, she's drinking in the pain. She's taking the pain, but she's hoping in Christ in the midst of that. And I think that's what Resurrection Sunday, this celebration, calls us to do. Yeah, death is a big deal. It's painful. It's hard. And I don't just mean physical death. How many of us have gone through those periods of having to die to ourselves? That's not easy either. What is the power that sustains us in those moments? Jesus Christ is, period. It sets us up for this final this final blow in this paragraph that captures these verses well. Martha, Jesus, or Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. What is Jesus' response to her? I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. And I love what Jesus does here do you believe this? I'm going to stop right there for just a second. So this is the I am reality here. This is common in John's gospel. It's a theme. I am the bread of life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the good shepherd. I am the door to the sheep. Before Abraham was, I am. Jesus is being very intentional when he does this right here. Literally, the Greek construction, ego eimi, the I there is unnecessary because the pronoun, I'm sorry for getting technical again, is built into the verb. So what Jesus literally says here is, I, I am. He is making a declarative statement that people who heard Him would have expressly understood as a claim to deity. I am. I am, not I will be, not I can be. Not I may be one day. Not when you're really in pain, I could be. He says I am. It is an eternal truth that governs who Jesus is and how we relate to him. I am the eternal. I am the resurrection. I am the life. And I love how he definitizes both. He doesn't give you power to the resurrection. He doesn't invite us into the resurrection. He doesn't say, I'm a source to life. I'm a way that you can live. He says, I am the resurrection and I am the life. He is those things. He embodies those things. They're a part of his identity. And so the resurrection, what is that? That's the not yet that we're waiting for. That's that final hope. Even if one dies, Jesus says, the body dies, he lives because he's connected to the source of life. The eternal life that he talks about is this life through faith. And so the believing never die. And so at funerals, when you hear of a deceased brother or sister in the Lord, they're not walking into eternity that day. They've been there with Jesus throughout their walk. Why? Because Jesus is the resurrection and the life. But you know what? Because Jesus understands the human capacity to let things stay in the academic realm, do you believe this? Because the woman at the well in John 4 wanted to take things to the theological and academic realm. Well, our fathers worshiped on this mountain and you worshiped on that mountain. Jesus won't let Martha just talk about the resurrection in theological terms now she has to declare, do you believe this? Brother or sister, this morning, do you believe this? That's the question we must answer on Resurrection Sunday. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? I love her answer. She's, Martha's our teacher this morning. She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. English can't rightly capture the way she actually says it. That verb is tensed a little bit differently. What she says is, literally, Yes, Lord, I have believed that you are the Christ, the Son of God. Now, why bring that out? Because she's not just beginning to believe now. She's telling him, I have believed, and I still believe, and I'll believe. It's a continuous state. It is the continuous, dare we say, eternal state of faith, of she's declaring, my faith is in you, and that's where my faith will stay. So if I could be super literal one more time, yes, Lord, I, I have believed that you, you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. I can't think of a better statement of faith for us to end on than this right here. I have believed that you, you are the Christ. And so when you're looking at this little paragraph, and I haven't even gotten into the Jesus was stirred deeply in his spirit and Jesus wept, and those things are vital. They actually flow right out of this. We dare not sentimentalize Jesus wept because when we talk about Jesus being stirred in his spirit, the Greek word there doesn't just mean he was deeply moved in a sort of uh, sentimental way. The word is anger. Jesus was angry. What was Jesus angry at? He was angry at what death had done to humanity. Why did he weep? He genuinely was sorrowful at what sin had wrought in the lives of humanity. And so when he tells Lazarus to come up out of that tomb, he is showing us what the power of good and God can do in the face of horrific death. And beloved, that's worth celebrating so that when we sing Jesus Christ has risen today, the alleluia, praise, Jehovah, praise, Yahweh, echoes because we are praising God that he has done what no one else could. So this morning... I want to declare to you, as a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ, our help is in Christ and our hope is in Christ, and they're not in anywhere else, nowhere else. There is nothing else to be found in any other place. There are not many roads to the mountaintop. There is one, and his name is Jesus, and he leads us. He is our hope in life and in death. Please pray with me. Father, we thank you for the resurrection hope that is revealed to us in Christ. Thank you for the words we've sung, the words we've read, the prayers we've prayed, and all that goes with it, Lord. This is not merely a sentimental exercise, but a matter of life and death in earnest. Your word, your word is the two-edged sword that cuts to the very heart of who we are, And Lord, we need your salvation. We need your reviving spirit to come and stir us afresh. Thank you for saving your people. Thank you for saving us. Oh, Lord, now ignite our minds and hearts that we would be set on fire by the power of the spirit with the word of God and that we might see your fire spread to other souls. We ask this in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen.